1: Agnostics, long short-haired weirdos, the 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 Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is author, attorney, and CNN senior legal analyst, Ellie Honig. Mr. Honig worked as a federal and state prosecutor for 14 years, trying cases involving violent crime, human trafficking, public corruption, and organized crime, including successful prosecutions of over 100 members and associates of the mafia. Today, we'll be talking about his just released book, Untouchable, How Powerful People Get Away With It. The book looks at powerful people from a lot of walks of life, Jeffrey Epstein, Bill Cosby, a bunch of mafia figures, but our focus in this discussion will be political and specifically on Donald Trump who is a primary focus of the book. Eli Honig, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks for having me, Michael. I'm looking forward to discussing with you. I I saw uh, some of your thoughts. I know you've read the book carefully, so uh,
1: let's dig in. Absolutely. So I I thought I'd start with uh, sort of a vague but important concept, and that's equal justice under the law, which is such a bedrock principle of uh, American law that it's literally engraved on the Supreme Court building. But you know, I think there are a lot of Americans, and I would count myself as one of them, who Don't entirely buy it because we have a suspicion or more than a suspicion that the quality of justice you get in this country is going to depend at least in to to some extent on how rich and powerful you are. And I wonder if you agree with that.
0: Well, equal justice under law is an aspiration and it's a worthy aspiration. I think it's our highest aspiration in this country. But I don't I don't think you'll find anyone who's serious who will argue that we've ever achieved that or maybe that it ever is achievable. Um, we're always trying to get a little better. But uh, of course, people who are rich, wealthy, powerful, fare better in our justice system. What I tried to do in this book, though, I, I think everyone mostly understands that. But what I tried to do in this book is blend together my own experience as a prosecutor with concrete trial stories. And you see plenty of them in the book with public reporting about what's happened over the last several years in particular relating to Donald Trump um with my own reporting and journalism where i where i break some news about how things played out inside DOJ and SDNY and explain to people exactly how and why this happens how and why we have these inequities um where the vulnerabilities are in our legal system how savvy how political and other powerful bosses know exactly how to exploit those vulnerabilities and in some instances where prosecutors have come up. short, And I was a former prosecutor. I spent 14 years as a prosecutor. But as you know, in this book, I am often uh, critical of other prosecutors who I think have failed to do their jobs.
1: Well, let's let's jump right into some of those specific things. Uh, One of the first of them that you discuss in the book is paying for attorneys to represent a potential witness against you. And I was hoping you could talk a little bit of how common this is, this is especially uh, in the Trump campaign and organization. You talk about that a lot and why it's uh, oftentimes very problematic, to say the least. Well, it's, it's much more common than people realize. It's commonplace, not
0: just in the Trump org, but in all sorts of orgs. Um, I think Michael people often people know that rich people can pay for these legal dream teams. We remember if you're old enough, like me the o j Simpson <laughs> dream team. Uh, a more recent example is Jeffrey Epstein in his first case in Florida, ended up with a ridiculously lenient result, and a big part of that, and I do some research, and I think I make a convincing case in the book, is because the prosecutor down there was basically just intimidated, overwhelmed by Epstein's legal dream team, which was Ken Starr and Alan Dershowitz, I actually don't think that either of those two were particularly great lawyers, but they're certainly big shots and well known and intimidating and, and many other lawyers who are very good uh, beyond them. But what people may not realize is that it's so common for the most powerful bosses, the richest bosses, they don't just pay for their own lawyers, they pay for other people's lawyers. This happens in corporate America. Uh, this happens in all sorts of orga- organized type cases. When I used to do mafia cases, we knew that if we indicted 22 people, all of those people's lawyers would be selected and paid for by the family, by the boss. And I tell a story in the book, I guess I don't want to give it away, <laughs> but about a time when one of those lower ranking guys did want to cooperate, but wasn't able at first because he couldn't go through his mob provided lawyer. And uh, it ends up being this dramatic scene where we try to flip him and, and keep him safe at the same time. And I, and as soon as I... St- I, I Saw some of the tactics of Donald Trump and said, Well, it's just like the cases I used to see. Um, We have all sorts of examples where Donald Trump and his political entities have paid for lawyers, provided more importantly, and paid for lawyers who uh, represented people who could have had damaging information about him, who we know have damaging information about him, but either refused to cooperate, refused to testify, in some cases started cooperating and then stopped. And, And to me, the best example of that is Cassidy Hutchinson. We remember her testimony from January 6th from the hearings. Uh, But remember, she had a Trump picked lawyer at first and she did not come fully clean and she wasn't able to do that until she was brave enough and resourceful enough to shake free and get her own lawyer. And I just want to be clear. I'm not saying this is necessarily evil. It actually a lot of times if a corporation, for example, is under investigation, employees may want to have their lawyers picked and paid for. I mean, it's expensive, but it has a natural consequence of favoring powerful people because it's just that much harder for people to flip against them.
1: Yeah. Well, you mentioned that this is expensive. I wonder if you give us a sense of what we're talking about here. And also, I guess, you know, Donald Trump is famous for uh, using other people's money uh, for a lot of things. And so is, is this thing that is, are these things that are being shelled out for by the individuals or are there ways to get around using your own money through corporate entities and other kind of back doors to pay for this sort of thing?
0: It, it's the latter. And Donald Trump, as you say, is very good at this. I did some research, looked through some FEC filings and other research. And um, in the book, I say that Donald Trump used over $58 million of campaign donations, whether to his campaigns or his to his affiliated PACs to pay for lawyers. Now, some of that is is your normal lawyering that you have to do. But an awful lot of that went to people who are potential witnesses. And for a purpose of comparison, the two presidents who came before Donald Trump, again, Donald Trump spent $58 million dollars. Both George W. Bush and Barack Obama spent under $11 million. So Trump spent at least five times more than each of them did on legal fees. So, um, you know, and, and you add to the first part of your question, which was how expensive is this? stuff? I don't think people realize how expensive criminal defense lawyers are, even if you're not a, char- a charged defendant, forget it. I mean, immediately, if you want to pay for private counsel, you're, th- you're well into the six figures. But even if you're a witness, even if you're someone who gets a subpoena, defense lawyers, and I lay out some of the figures and some examples in the book are shockingly expensive. It's really hard for people to pay for lawyers. And one of the things I point out in the book is we as prosecutors sometimes know if a person can't afford a lawyer um, or can only afford them for pre-trial, but not for trial itself. Usually it mm-hmm. costs double or more if the guy wants to go to trial. I had defense lawyers say to me, yeah, he's, he's paid me, but only, only for uh, plea negotiations, not for trial. Well, Jeez. What does that do to a person's <laughs> leverage, right? Yeah. If the lawyer's pounded on the table saying, I'll see you at trial, and I know he can't afford trial, uh, kind of undermines the leverage. Right.
1: Another thing I want to ask you about is this connection or potential connection between, uh, well, about decisions, whether to prosecute in the first place and how that might relate to something like, say, campaign contributions. Now, of course, at the federal level, U.S. attorneys, federal judges, they're not elected officials, but- That's not the case for a lot of state and local officials. Uh, And so, I mean, what, what sort of potential conflicts are there here, would you say? The vast majority of
0: prosecutors in this country are at the state and county level. The vast majority of those prosecutors are elected. I guess I think I've been lucky. I've worked for two different offices over 14 years, neither of which was elected. We had U.S. attorneys. All federal prosecutors are appointed by the president or just hired on a nonpolitical basis and all um, in New Jersey, where I was in part of the state AG's office, the AG is appointed by the governor. Um, to me, the mix of electoral politics and prosecution is inherently toxic, dangerous for reasons that I think anyone can imagine. Why would you want to get into the game of, if you're a prosecutor, having to worry about, is this decision to charge this person, not charge this person, going to anger the voters? Is this decision going to please the voters? Might people be tempted to pander to voters through their prosecutorial action? And then you add on top of that what you mentioned, the overlay of fundraising. And I give examples in the book of cases uh, of instances where prosecutors had taken substantial donations from people and then went quite light. On their clients, there's one instance involving Cy Vance, the former DA of Manhattan, where he basically gave Donald Trump's children, Ivanka and Donald Trump Jr., this is well before Trump was president, a pass on what was a fairly straightforward fraud case relating to a real estate transaction, and it turned out Cy Vance had taken substantial Campaign donations from Donald Trump's lawyer, and then when he got found out, he returned the donations. And then when the case blew over, he took an even larger donation. (laughs) And my point that I make in the book, Michael, is: Look, am I saying cy Vance or anyone else who takes a donation is you know taking bribes or on the take? No, I don't. I mean, that would be criminal. I don't accuse these people of being criminals. But what's the motivation? Why would a defense lawyer give money to a prosecutor? And also, it just looks bad. The appearance is unacceptable because any normal person would look at that and go. Boy, that looks fishy. I don't like how that looks. I don't like the feel of that. And that's important. That matters in building public confidence in our criminal justice system. Yeah.
1: And, you know, I would think that even if I'm, say, a U.S. attorney and it's not an elected position, if I'm an ambitious person who has maybe aspirations to a political future, I, I might think, well, who do I want as enemies and who do I want as friends? And again, that's not suggesting any sort of corruption, just sort of a looking out for one's own future.
0: Yeah, well, l- listen. Uh, this is an interesting phenomenon. I mean, it can be nerve wracking if you're thinking about your future. If you're in particular lines of prosecution, I mean, it never applied to me when I did mob cases. I had no aspirations <laughs> to become a mobster. Yeah, but um, you know, I will. I know people who have not wanted to go into public corruption units because they didn't want to break any eggs and they had future aspirations of doing things in the political realm, and they knew that if they went into a public corruption unit. Um, there could be consequences for them down the line. I mean, look at – I'll give you an example. Uh, Chris Christie prosecuted Jared Kushner's father in a case in New Jersey when Chris Christie was U.S. attorney before he was governor on a case that nobody has ever argued was an unjust prosecution. I mean, Jared Kushner's father did horrible things. He hired a prostitute to seduce his brother-in-law, Jeez. filmed the encounter, <laughs> and sent the film to the wife in order to intimidate the brother-in-law from cooperating. I mean, that's uh. a crime many times <laughs> over. Yet Jared Kushner and Donald Trump, basically Jared Kushner really sought vengeance on Chris Christie. They, you know, he was the transition chair and then they threw him out. Um, and, and it's been reported that Jared undermined Christie at every turn. That's it. That's a high stakes example, but even on much lower scales, um, there is some fear
1: involved there. And, you know, I think it's kind of related to this idea, and I'm I'm a fan from, I'll I'll date myself here, of of The Wire. There's a saying, uh, if you come at the king, you best not miss, right? And uh, and I think that idea that if you go after a powerful person and you don't end up taking them down, there is a not unreasonable fear of retribution in a million. It it doesn't necessarily have to be anything large, right? It can be a word said to the right person that stalls your career advancement or, or a million little things like that.
0: Yeah, so first of all, I just want to note I do have wire references in this book, (laughs) um, including including comparing an FBI agent who I worked for to Jimmy McNulty. Yes, um, which I think is a very apt comparison. Um, You know that expression "Come at the king, you best not miss." That really can mean one of two things to me, or maybe both of two things. One is what you said. You know, there could be retribution if you miss. I think that's the original intent of that of that saying, which I think comes from Shakespeare or something. If you go way back, Um, but the other meaning, and I sort of do get it at this in the book, is if you take a shot at a heavy hitter and you don't succeed in that case and this applies to Donald Trump it will be with you forever you will live with that forever you will be when you die your obituary will say prosecutor who tra- can, you know <laughs> yeah. who, who failed to convict so and so prosecutor who lost trial of so and so and we're aware of that and part of that's just you know ego but a bigger part of that is You have to protect your office's reputation and public standing. And if you're losing high profile, if you lose, I guarantee you, if you are in charge of a high profile office and you lose two or three high profile trials in a row, it doesn't matter if your office is churning out routine victories day by day. You're going to get the article about this happened when I was at the Southern District of New York. We had a U.S. attorney, Mike Garcia, and we had a couple setbacks in a row, not cases of mine, not that I didn't have a setback, but and it was sure enough, there's the article You know, rough times in the SDNY Mm -hmm. under Mike Garcia. The office is really suffering.
1: So that's a reality. And so then if you're deciding whether or not to prosecute a case, that has to be at least in the back of your mind, you would think. And that would mean I would expect that you would want to be much more certain in one of these high profile cases to even bring charges in the first place than against, say, somebody who no one will ever have heard of.
0: So you've hit on yet another uh, factor, I think under known, under recognized factor that favors rich and powerful people, which is if you're getting ready to charge or considering whether to charge a, a, a bold boldface name, by rule, it has to go up to higher and higher levels of scrutiny. And I cite the U.S. Attorneys, mm-hmm. what we used to call the U.S. Attorneys Manual. Now they've changed the name to the Justice Manual, which is the binding guidance that goes out to all federal prosecutors in the country. It's a public document. You can Google it. And in various points, it says, If your subject is a political official, if your subject is likely to draw media attention, then your case has to go up to higher and higher levels of supervision and higher, higher levels of review and scrutiny and approval. And I give some examples in the book. I guess I'll give you one here. I had a case involving a fairly well-known Major League Baseball player. He was at the periphery of a gambling ring. He wasn't gambling. He wasn't Pete Rose. He wasn't gambling on baseball, for those of you who are baseball fans. But he was taking bets. He was sort of working as a bookmaker in association, loose association with the Mafia family. And I don't say his name in the book. I won't say it here. But he was a well-known player and made a couple all-star teams. Um, and if this guy was not a baseball player, if he was just an accountant, if he just owned a bodega or something, I would have made that decision about what to do with this guy myself. I was maybe a third or fourth year prosecutor at the time, but because it involved this famous person, it had to go up to my deputy chief, to my chief, to the criminal division chief and to the U S attorney. And ultimately the decision, I think it was the right decision was we didn't charge him. We actually turned him into a witness. He helped us. He gave us some information. Um, I think that was the right outcome, but the point is, um, The higher you have to go, the more chances there are for somebody to reject a case. And that's just – and by the way, that's not evil. That's important because you do have to protect your office's reputation, as we just talked about. But the
1: natural result
0: of that is more scrutiny goes into high-profile cases.
1: Let's say a prosecution does go forward. Can you talk a little bit about, I guess, what I call the balance of resources? I mean, how well that, say, government, when we're talking about, say, U.S. attorneys bringing a, a case against someone, uh, how how well can they match up in terms of resources and, and staffing and so forth? Then, as you know, with someone, say, like a Donald Trump or a generation ago, a Bill Clinton sort of person.
0: Yeah, so that's interesting. We're talking about resources here. I mean, I'm not sure how much resources Donald Trump actually has. I mean, he has substantial resources, but I talk about some cases in the book of people who I th- have who have resources that I think exceed Donald Trump's. I mean, when I was at the Southern District of New York, there was a, a, an inside trading case against a guy named Raj Rajaram who spent, I think, it was five million dollars on his defense when um, El Chapo Guzman, the notorious drug lord, was tried. In Brooklyn, he spent forty million dollars wow. on his defense. So, um, and now look, look, DOJ always has more resources, but it's a question of how DOJ wants to allocate those resources. And I, I will tell you, um, trying cases against big law firms and, and heavy hitter lawyers is can be a nightmare. Um, I tell a story in the book about a case we tried against a big firm in New York City, and they loaded up this case with partners and associates and paralegals and runners. and And I just tell a little story. I say. You know, we would get these motions every night, yeah. I and mean, you're barely sleeping. You're barely eating during trial anyway. And every night at three forty-five in the morning, motion to dismiss, motion to blah blah blah. blah. And one morning, I'm at, I'm at the like little uh, convenience store by the courthouse, and I run into the paralegal, and it's like seven in the morning. And I said, "I said no motion last night, huh? You guys got the night off?" And he goes, "Check your email." And when I got in, I checked my email at like six forty. There was yeah. a motion. I was like, "Oh
1: Jesus!" Oh.
0: Um, so, um. That- that's just a reality. And look, I want to say, I make this clear in the book, I do not buy into this notion, I I know, um, that it's it's wrong to say that, pedo- that public defenders are sort of hacks or overworked, you know, the common sure. sort of uh, stereotype. Um, public defenders, especially in the federal system are outstanding. Um, in the state system, a little more variability, candidly. There's some who are overburdened and just really can't keep up with their cases. But there are some excellent publicly available lawyers, but Boy, if you're given the choice, you know, given the choice between having money to hire hire whoever I want and and having to go with public, uh, I know which way I'm going.
1: Definitely. And, you know, I also found it interesting when you talked about the ways that powerful people who want to evade the law can insulate themselves by a couple of things that I think are related, both by having cutout men or middlemen, as well as I think you call it saying things without actually saying them. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that.
0: So any one of the uh, points I make in the book is that nothing protects power like power itself. Sitting at the top of an organizational hierarchy, whether it's the mob like I used to do, whether it's a, a corporation and you're the CEO, whether it's a political entity and you're the leader, really has its benefits. I mean, picture those uh, charts that you see on TV where, the, where they're all in layers and the lines go to each other. I mean, uh-huh. we, we actually had those for the mafia <laughs> um, because the mafia has these neat ranks, so it sort of lends itself to that. But if you're at the top, think about this. You don't have to talk to many people. Smart people limit the number of people they're talking to. I, I talk about the great scene in the movie, Goodfellas, where they're at the barbecue and uh, Paulie, uh-huh. the boss, that's, is sitting there. And one of the guys comes over, whispers in Paulie's ear, and he just nods. <laughs> yep. And Ray Liotta, in, in voiceover, Ray Liotta says, for a guy who moved all day, Paulie didn't <laughs> talk to six people. Yeah. Um, completely consistent with the way any smart boss would do business. Also, and, and by doing that, you insulate yourself. You give yourself deniability. And I give some examples and stories of that in the book. Also, the savviest bosses, and Trump is good at this, know how to give a command without quite saying, hey, I need you to commit a crime for me. And I give a couple examples of that in the book where it was entirely clear to Donald Trump's people what he wanted them to do, but he didn't have to say, hey, I need you to lie for me. There's an example where Michael Cohen lies in front of Congress about Trump's business dealings with Russia. Cohen ended up pleading guilty to that. And he's asked, um, did Trump tell you to lie? He was asked by Congress, I believe. And Cohen said, no, that's not the way he worked. What he would do is call me in and say, hey, I know you got a subpoena. I know you're testifying. I know you're going to do the right thing. And we had heard him lying in public so much about it that we knew what the party line was. And so mission accomplished. And I I tell stories about mob cases where bosses um, never quite said, hey, I need you to extort this guy. I need you to kill this guy. But where the intent was clear. But as a result, it makes it especially difficult to prosecute. And I candidly acknowledge some prosecutions I had that I think came up a little short for that reason.
1: And, you know, in that context, I think of January 6th and that Trump rally where he says, you know, you'll never take back our country with weakness and you have to show strength. But does that mean, you know, is that inciting a riot or that? I think that's exactly Um, the sort of thing that you're you're suggesting. Right.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's an example. That one is, a, I think, a little bit tr- trickier than the Michael Cohen lying example because you could argue that's just political True. rhetoric. That's heated rhetoric. But yeah, I mean, look, did his followers know what he meant? Look what they did. Right. I mean, they, they went and ransacked the Capitol. And a lot of them have since said in their court cases or in public that, oh, no, we, we understood what he was telling us to do. So, yeah, that's another example.
1: You know, one thing with Donald Trump, I think that everyone's aware of who's followed his career is that he is he's willing to sue someone or at least threaten to sue someone at at the drop of a hat, basically, no matter even even if he doesn't have much of a case. And I was wondering how much of uh, how effective do you think that is in insulating him and getting people to maybe not go after him because of that threat of potential litigation?
0: So it's. It's a mixed bag for Trump. He certainly has had a lot of success over the years by just bullying people in courts, by knowing that he can outlast and outfund any lawsuit. And going back to well before he was president, back when he was a real estate developer, I'm being charitable, but in, in Atlantic City, in New York City, if you ever read Maggie Haberman's book, Confidence Man, which is fantastic, she details how he would just take everyone to court and people knew they couldn't hang with him. He just I'll outlast you. Battle of attrition. You can't pay the lawyers. You can't keep up with all the paperwork. Um, And that was a classic form of bullying that Trump used. Now, this has started to bounce back on him a little bit recently, though. We've seen some lawsuits dismissed. We've seen some sanctions, meaning penalties against Trump and his lawyers for bringing frivolous lawsuits. Um, Again, I don't know. Nobody knows exactly where Trump's current financial situation is, but that's absolutely a tactic that's benefited him for a long time. And he's not the only one who does it. I mean, Sure. I'll give you a newsy example. Madison Square Garden is the, the, where the Knicks and the Rangers play now has this policy that any lawyer at any firm that has sued them can't come to Rangers and <laughs> Knicks games. Um, I don't know why you want to go to see the Knicks, uh, but no, yeah. sorry. I'm a Sixers yeah. fan. I couldn't resist. But, um, but you know, that is obviously an, obviously an illegal unconstitutional policy, but the owner's position seems to be bring it on. I'm yeah. a billionaire. I own the Knicks. You want to sue me? We can go to court. Um, so that's that's a common tactic.
1: What about Trump's penchant uh, again, penchant for verbally attacking federal judges, judges in general, and basically anyone who uh, dares to go up against him in the legal system? Do you think that that helps him, or is that another sort of thing that maybe was initially helpful, but that has sort of come back to maybe work against him at this point? So,
0: as a starting point, any person, any citizen of this country has a right to criticize prosecutors and judges. Where you put yourself in public service, you you subject yourself to that. Um, You do not have the right to threaten those people with physical violence. You do not have the right to obstruct justice or interfere with judicial proceedings. Um, I think Donald Trump has clearly crossed that line more times than we can count, but I put a lot of those in the book where his words, his threats, have, have crossed that line to where he's obviously threatening people, retaliating against people. I give all sorts of specific examples. The other thing is, If you're the president of the United States, um, it is really disgraceful conduct to do that. You are undermining in in a sort of a very blunt manner, uh, our entire judicial process. And if you look at Trump, not only has he attacked prosecutors immediately, no matter who's opening a case against him, he immediately accuses that person of being biased and and vicious and whatever other words he uses. Um, But in my view, like, I don't really feel too bad for those prosecutors. You should just shrug that off. He also has attacked judges, which I think is a big problem and at times has uh, has backfired. What I really have a problem with, though, is he has attacked witnesses, people who've testified against him, civilians and a juror in at least one case. He attacked a juror in the Roger Stone case. He tweeted to 80 million people as president of the United States about a civilian doing her civic duty. And I I think that absolutely crosses a line.
1: And, you know, one other thing, of course, you have as president is the ability to pardon people, at least, at least for federal crimes. And uh, how big of a deal do you think that is? And uh, can you talk maybe about the, at least the potential for abuse or maybe the actual abuse of that pardon power?
0: Well, Donald Trump is a pioneer of sorts when it comes to <laughs> the pardon power. Um, he actually issued just numerically less, fewer uh, pardons than many of his predecessors. But he issued a... An extraordinarily high percentage to people who he had personal or political relationships with. Um, the abuse of the pardon power is nothing new. I mean, we can go back to Bill Clinton. Uh, had some notorious pardons of his own half brother, of Mark Rich, a, a fugitive mm-hmm. financier, billionaire. Um, you know, it's nothing new to see presidents using the pardon power for for ugly means. But what Trump has done that's really been novel, revolutionary, depending how you want to look at this. He figured out how to use the pardon power to protect himself. No, he never pardoned himself although he did sort of flirt with that idea a few times publicly. But what he would do is over and over when someone would get arrested or potentially be arrested who might be in position to flip on him, he would dangle that pardon publicly. There's one time when I think it was Manafort, I forget who it is, but I quoted in the book, and Trump's asked if he if he would consider a pardon. He goes, "Oh, I'm not going to discuss that publicly." Absolutely not. He goes, "But but I would consider it." I mean, you know, so it's like <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to I'm not going to dangle it, but now I'll dangle it. And I cite, I think it's four or five examples in the book of times when somebody either could have testified against him, but refused or started to cooperate against him. Michael Flynn and Paul Manafort, but stopped and ultimately were rewarded with a pardon. And so Trump basically almost made it this system where he would buy, not with cash, but essentially dangle the pardon then, and then deliver the pardon if you shut up. And by the way, He pardoned virtually everybody in the Mueller investigation, except for the two people who cooperated, Michael Flynn and Rick Gates. So I think that's pretty telling right there.
1: Well, I I wanted to talk a little bit more about the Mueller investigation, because at the end, uh, Mueller concluded that, uh, well, they didn't conclude that President Trump committed a crime. It also didn't exonerate him and he didn't make a recommendation concerning an indictment. But a lot of people would say, well, it's because just DOJ policy is not to indict a sitting president. And and Mueller himself said that was not an option we could consider because of that. And so I guess I had a two part question here. Number one, do you agree with that DOJ policy policy? And do you think that if Donald Trump weren't a sitting president, given the facts that we we know that, you know, would he have been indicted? Well, my answer to number two would would be,
0: of course, he would have or should have. But here we are two years into Donald Trump not being president and he's not been indicted. So um, and I talk about that and I analyze that in the book and I I say in the book, he might well be indicted by the time you're holding this book in your hands. But I also talk in the book about why indictments, one thing, but convictions, another and going to be quite difficult um, for Donald Trump. Regarding the DOJ no indictment policy, I actually did a deep historical dive on this. Um, Sometimes people say DOJ cannot indict the sitting president, but that's actually not quite right. The real way to say it is DOJ has for about 50 years decided that it does not want to even try. Um, This came up during the 1970s. Now you're probably thinking Watergate. Actually, it came up because of Spiro Agnew, the vice president who was in a separate bribery scandal unrelated to Watergate. Um, And unfortunately for Spiro Agnew, the answer from DOJ was good news, bad news, good news, we cannot indict a sitting president. Bad news, we can indict a sitting vice president. (laughs) How they drew that distinction, I I guess I'll leave to history. Um, But it's actually an open question whether you can indict a president. It's never been tried. There's no constitutional provision on it. There's no law on it. There's no statute on it. Um, If you look at these internal memos, I think they're really interesting because they don't really deal with the law. They deal with practicality. Basically, they ask the question, how on earth would our executive branch function if we had a president who was indicted? We could have a trial of a sitting president. We could have a theoretically a sitting president in prison. Um, Do I think it's right? I actually do. I actually think that it would be too disruptive, too dangerous for our system. The way it's supposed to work is if a president done something horrible, he's supposed to be impeached, and then then you can indict him, um, or when he leaves office. um, And I also am critical of Mueller because I think Mueller failed. While Mueller could not indict Trump, he absolutely could have. And I think if you look at the law, it says he should have said, here's my conclusion. This is indictable conduct or not. And instead, you remember, we got this mush mouth. Well, he's not indicted, so I can't say because he can't defend himself, but I would say if I could exonerate him, but I can't, so I won't. It was just this, like, useless blather, um, and I think Mueller and his team failed in that respect.
1: You, you know, there are some people, though, who even if they say, well, yes, Donald Trump did a lot of the things that he's being accused of, and it might even be possible not just to indict him but to convict him of some things like, for instance, obstructions is the one that seems to me to be the most slammed dunky that can't be a word. But anyway, so they would argue that the political cost of doing that would be so much greater potentially than any possible benefit that that therefore, for just sort of pragmatic reasons, Donald Trump gets a pass that you or I wouldn't just because of the, the political fallout. I, I was wondering what you think about that line of reasoning.
0: Um, yeah, I look, I don't agree that any case against Donald Trump is a slam dunk. First of all, let me say that as, sure. as a prosecutor, you know, um especially Donald Trump, um I do lay out a case against him in the book. I say here's what an indictment might look like, but I also am careful to say there there are potential issues with some of these. Um I do think it is legitimate for prosecutors to consider the real world. You know, on paper, prosecutors are sort of supposed to make these mechanical uh bloodless calculations about just the facts and the law, and that's it. That's not reality. That's not how prosecutors work. And I don't think that's how prosecutors should work. And in fact, there are points in that justice manual that I mentioned before where it says you should be thinking about other factors, the, the fairness of this, the impact this may have on others around the person. And so, of course, it would be, of course, Merrick Garland has thought about the fact that Merrick Garland, excuse me, that Donald Trump is a former president and is a current candidate for president. It would be crazy for him not to. And people who see Merrick Garland as this sort of saintly, non political figure <laughs> are deluding them. Because Merrick Garland thinks about Donald Trump being the former president every day. He appointed a special counsel in large part because of that. And you don't get to become a federal appellate judge, a Supreme Court nominee, and the Attorney General of the United States if you're just oblivious as to politics. So I do think it's fair to think about that. Um, But I also don't think it means that you should just never go through with it. I think there are times, and I argue in particular with respect to the coup attempt, that justice still needs to be done even if it's politically going to cause waves.
1: You know, another protection that presidents at least have uh, is uh, executive privilege, right? This idea that presidents should be allowed to have free and frank conversations with their with their aides and other top officials and so forth, uh, even to talk about ideas that maybe are kind of very off the wall, like some of the crazy ideas John Eastman had about presidential succession and and so forth. But uh, do you think that that has been a concept that's being abused, particularly by Donald Trump? And and, and if so, in what sense? Uh, yes, to your
0: question. Like pardons, um, executive privilege goes way back. And, and if you think executive privilege is somehow evil, um, I guarantee you your favorite president, whoever that may be, has used it, whether it's Clinton or Jefferson or Lincoln. or or Bush or whoever uh, has used it under some name or other. The the way we've referred to it has changed a bit over history. But the idea is that certain internal communications within the executive branch are are off limits and should not be uh, part of a criminal case or or subject to Congress or or subpoena. Um, But what Donald Trump Trump took it from, I, I think the way I say it in the book is presidents by and large used to use executive privilege as a scalpel and Donald Trump turned it into a sled chamber. So in other words, presidents used to be very reluctant to invoke it because politically it doesn't look good. Essentially what you're saying is no public, you don't get to know about this and people don't like that. People don't like secrets. And so if you look back through history, some presidents have used it more sparingly than others. Donald Trump just came out there. He went, he walked onto the White House lawn in the beginning of the, or in the middle of the Mueller investigation. And he said, we're fighting all the subpoenas. Anyone who took him as, as just being hyperbolic there ended up wrong because they <laughs> yeah. did every single subpoena, not just to him, but the people around him. And we see people saying executive privilege, executive privilege. And the bottom line is he has lost almost all of these battles in the courts um, because he is so overextended the theory. However, at times he's won just by delaying, just by getting a case into the court. Look at, look at when he was subpoenaed by the January 6th committee. This actually isn't even in the book because I think it happened after I was done writing it. Um, but he gets a subpoena and it was the January sixth committee's fault for subpoenaing him so late. I don't. I think they uh-huh. did that yeah. on purpose because they didn't want the fight. He just says, "Now make me executive privilege, whatever," and the clock runs out. So he, he sort of has managed to win by losing at times
1: yeah you you mentioned uh, a little bit earlier the kind of mush mouth sort of conclusion to the, the the Mueller investigation I think a lot of folks, especially on the left, would say that part of that was aided and abetted by attorney general uh, william Barr and I know you have deep familiarity with Barr because you wrote up your last book Hatchet Man was about Bill Barr and you argue that basically he corrupted the justice department that's not an exaggeration it's the subtitle of the book and I, I wanted to get into that a little. <laughs> because I think it's connected. Literally, here. the title. But yeah, so you know, it, it's also a plug for the book as well. But that's okay, because it, it seems to me you can make an argument, and I have previously on the show that well, if you look at Bill Barr's history, he's a big believer in executive power, and so it's not so much he was sort of in Trump's pocket. Is he have these keys? Has these kind of out there views, a strong view of executive power that just happened to fit well with donald trump's presidency or poorly i guess and i wanted to get your Mm -hmm. your take on am i being too charitable to bill barr i guess no
0: (laughs) (laughs) you're not um no i think you actually nailed it i mean bill barr first of all was a big part of distorting the Mueller report he I, i argue in the book that not only did he distort Mueller's findings but he intentionally withheld the report i don't know if you remember this michael but from the Bill Barr got the Mueller report twenty seven days before he released it to the public. All he gave us was his four page letter summarizing that report, and which completely distorted it. And, and nobody was able to say, "Hey, wait, this is nonsense," until a month later. By which point it was over; it had already s- sort of solidified in everyone's heads. Um, with respect to Barr, I argue that he was deeply dishonest. I call him a liar in the book, and I don't use that phrase lightly. Um, but I cite all sorts of instances where he lied. Um, and I think, you know, people, it, it was not because he had this starry-eyed view of Trump as this mystical figure, right? Some of Trump's followers, aides, admirers see him as this yeah, magical yeah. figure. Barr, I think, had a fairly clear-eyed view of Trump, but he recognized, they used each other. They each recognized each other as, as a valuable means to an end. Trump saw Barr as a guy who was going to cover up and protect him, which is what Barr did. Barr saw Trump as a guy who Barr could use to sort of implement this view of, all-encompassing federal power, basically. all-encompassing presidential power, basically. And Barr also believed that the entire Mueller investigation was corrupt and and unjustified. And, um, you know, a little detail that we forget about, but Barr, he wrote a a whole memo shortly before he became attorney general campaigning for the job, telling Donald Trump, basically, he says that Mueller's investigation is fatally flawed, fatally misconceived, meaning he told us all before he got the job he was going to kill the investigation. That's why he got the job, and that's exactly what he did.
1: Now, when I think about this, but I think, well, maybe this is uh, somewhat of a natural or not surprising result of a system in which you have attorney generals appointed by someone like Donald Trump confirmed by a Republican at the time majority Senate, whereas, you know, and I think it's 43 of the 50 states, attorney generals, an independently elected position. And I'm wondering is, do the states have it? at least most of the states have a better system for kind of insulating that just system from the executive? What, what do you think about that?
0: No, I'm in favor of appointed prosecutors. Look, there's no, I mean, there's no perfect way, right? The yeah. best way would be, uh, you know, the, the the almighty in heaven above would say <laughs> yeah. that person right there is the, is the highest integrity person we have. Right. But uh, you know, we live, in, we, we live in the real world and your only real options are appointed or elected. We talked about before, I think the mix of electoral politics and fundraising and prosecution is absolutely dangerous and, and I'm opposed to it. Um, now, the model of a president appointing an AG subject to confirmation by Senate is not perfect, but through our history has been pretty effective. Um, I mean, Janet Reno famously was so independent. She ended up opening investigation that led to Bill Clinton's impeachment. Um, you know, I worked at the justice department for about four years under the Bush Republican administration, about four years under the Obama democratic administration. I think all the AGs we had Ashcroft, Gonzalez, Holder and Lynch, um, were, were had integrity. I'm not saying they were perfect, but, um, and, and you know, while it's perfectly fine for an AG to carry out the policy preferences of a president did not in, initiate criminal cases to satisfy the president's political yearnings or kill political cases, uh, for political reasons. Um, so, but I think that changed with Bill Barr and I think he, he pulled the fast, well, he didn't really pull a fast one on us because he had written that memo yeah. already and we all knew what he was going to do. But um, look, I'm very critical in this book in some respects of Merrick Garland. But what I do say in the book is I, I, I deeply respect Merrick Garland's integrity. He's never lied to us. Kind of sad that we have to praise an attorney general <laughs> for not lying to us. But after Bill Barr, here we are. Um, but also like also he has um, stood his ground for political independence. I, I set a couple of examples in the book where Joe Biden, there's one instance where Joe Biden said publicly that he wanted to see People who defied subpoenas from the January 6th committee prosecuted. And Merrick Garland and DOJ issued a public statement that essentially said, I'm paraphrasing, we don't take our orders from the president. Um, And I give him credit for that. It's a gutsy thing to say and the right thing to say. That's how it ought to be at DOJ.
1: Let's talk a little more specifically about what, what I think, I, it's hard to keep track of all the investigations involving Donald Trump, but I think, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, there are four big ones. And I'm thinking about here, the Mar-a-Lago documents one, the January 6th Capitol breach, that Georgia election interference investigation, and just recently, uh, the Manhattan DA's investigation into the hush money to the porn star in 2016. Um, and again, that's setting aside the Trump organization stuff and a bunch of other civil things. So can you maybe talk, take them in whatever order you want, but if you could talk a little bit about what you think about the strength of these cases based on what you know, and if you think he'll be indicted and possibly convicted for anything in any of these cases.
0: Well, I do think it's increasingly likely that he'll be indicted um, at least once and possibly multiple times, but um, it's not certain, but I do think that all the signs are pointing that way. Um, And I think, as I said before, I think it's, entirely different universes to indict someone and to convict someone. And as I argue in the book, I think there are real obstacles to conviction. I think it's quite clear that Fulton County, the the district attorney in Georgia, intends to to indict Trump uh, and probably fairly soon. Um, But I have a whole chapter in the book laying out why that's going to be extraordinarily difficult to turn into conviction for legal and political and practical reasons. Um, We're now learning that the New York County Manhattan DA has reopened the hush money payment uh, case to stormy daniels i have original reporting in this book about how the feds across the street where i used to work in manhattan considered charging this very case and decided against it for reasons both factual but also political and i give all i take you inside the justice department in the book and there was a heated dispute within doj about how that should play out um i think whether doj charges trump i think is a trickier question we have this special counsel now I do not believe Merrick Garland will indict Donald Trump on January 6th. I think he should. I think he should have, uh, you, you know, in late 2021. Part of my criticism, of Merrick Garland, is that he's moving so slowly, I think, much to his own detriment. It's not just about being patient or impatient. It's about making it virtually impossible to get a conviction. When are you going to try this case? In the middle of the primaries in 2024? Um, you know, you have to get all 12 jurors. I don't, if I had to guess, I would guess Garland will not indict Trump on January 6th. And I think Mar-a-Lago, the document's, could go either way. I think the recent revelations with Biden, while completely separate and different in many respects from Trump, does make it more politically difficult for uh, for Garland to indict Trump, but not Biden.
1: Do you think it's in a way easier for maybe the at the state level or at the, at the local level for prosecutors to go ahead with these cases than, say, Garland? deal? I mean, if there's, there's a, a line of reasoning suggesting that, well, Merrick Garland is not going to bring an indictment unless he's pretty darn sure that he could get a conviction, whereas I don't know if that calculus is the same in Fulton County or the Manhattan DA's office. Well, it's
0: definitely easier to use your your question because all that Fonnie Willis needs to get approval from in order to bring an indictment is Fonnie Willis. Right. And, you know, the incentives are different. Let's be honest. I mean, Fonnie Willis and the Manhattan DA are in heavy, heavy blue districts. And if you tick off Democrats, you're not going to win. And if you please Democrats, you're going to win. Um, doj has different incentives that said and and for a lot of the same reasons i think there are real legal obstacles to a county level elected da charging a former president i i think it could well be the case that the courts the federal courts say we cannot have that doj can indict a president for something touching on the presidency but for purposes of the legal the legal doctrines would be federalism and, and uh Um, federal supremacy and constitutional immunity for certain officers but basically i could very much see especially the very conservative federal courts that cover georgia saying no we cannot have county elected partisan da's indicting former presidents over anything that touches on the presidency i guess there's an argument whether what trump did touches on the presidency because it's going to be a disaster then you would have the next joe arpaio i know he was a sheriff but Joe Arpaio type indicting Barack Obama over something. And then you could have the next guy indicting Joe Biden over something. Um, And it sets a terrible precedent. If the president has to sit there and worry, is some local in a heavy blue or red state of the opposite party going to look to score by coming after me? That could really impede the presidency. So I think if we see indictments, especially out of Fulton County, um, that could be thrown out by the federal courts. I guess New York is a little different because they'd be talking about pre presidential conduct, about the hush money payments actually happened before Trump was president. So um, that may be a little different.
1: You know, even before I read your book, I, I would have put the odds at Donald Trump being convicted at somewhat low. And his actually, the idea of him, you know, serving any time and behind bars at virtually nil. And that's even, that's been strengthened after reading the book. And I wanted to get your take. Do you think that there's any likely real chance that Donald Trump actually ends up? Number one, being convicted, and number two, maybe, as some people, you've seen the, the memes and the pictures in and the, and the orange jumpsuit.
0: Um, chance of conviction are low. Not impossible, but I lay out the obstacles in the book, um, both legal that we just discussed and, and the difficulty of getting a jury, even in a blue district. You look, at, you look at Fulton County, heavy blue district, but 26% of the voters voted for Trump. But mathematically, if you're looking at a randomly selected 12%. Person jury you are almost certain 90 mid 90s i forget i have the number in the book percent to have at least one trump voter juror high 80s percent to have two somewhere in the 70s percent to have three um, you're just not going to get a conviction you're not going to get 12 zero i know judges say put aside your views and judge on the law but jurors sure. are human beings i i've been in front of many many juries the chances of him going to, to prison are are close to nil um these you know jaunty memes of trump in an orange jumpsuit are the stuff of fantasy because even if he's convicted by a jury unanimously. Then you need to go the the judge needs to sentence him to prison. Not clear a judge would do that. A judge may say, well, he's he's been disgraced, he's been removed from office. Depends what he's convicted of. Then you need to go through the court of appeals that has to uphold the verdict. Then you need to go through probably the supreme court of whatever if it's a state um, or or federally if it would be the US Supreme Court. And all of those entities need to hold up the the, the case. I just think there's the odds of it getting through all of those filters Um, are extremely low and let's remember by the way this will take years i mean if he's indicted tomorrow it takes at least a year in a case like this to get to trial it'll take time to try him appeals can take years i mean you know donald trump could be well into his 80s and and not in great health by then and judges will take that into consideration at times they sometimes judges will say look you need to get a sentence but i don't necessarily need you to die in prison so i think the odds of donald trump ever actually being locked up are very very low
1: well, you know, I'd like to end on at least a potentially positive note. And we, we've spent this entire time talking about, well, how rich and powerful people, specifically Donald Trump, get away with a lot of things that non-rich and non-powerful people wouldn't. And I guess I'm wondering what sort of things we might be able to do that would help to balance this out. I mean, as you said at the beginning, we're never going to get any Real 100% equality. That's kind of impossible. It's aspirational at best. But are there things, do you think, that we could do, changes that could be made that would maybe make these folks a little less untouchable? I do think there's a lot of changes we can make. And I think one of the key things is
0: for the public and also prosecutors to recognize some of these tactics so that prosecutors in particular can counteract them. It's sort of like in, in football. If you know, if you understand the other team's playbook a little more, if you look at the film, you might be a little better uh, positioned to strategize around that and to strategize to counterattack. And, and I put a lot of that in the book. Um, I think we need to change some of our laws. I have a whole section in the book about how the U.S. Supreme Court has vastly narrowed down the scope of corruption laws to the point where it's virtually impossible to take out uh, high-level public officials for bribery and corruption offenses. And by the way, If you are a liberal and you blame conservatives on the Supreme Court, or you're a conservative and you blame liberals on the Supreme Court, as much division as we have right now, they have been Uh unanimous on these cases, throwing out these corruption cases, 9 nothing. So if you want to see the rare case where Justice Sotomayor and and Kagan agree with Justices Alito and Thomas, look at these cases. Um, And Congress, by the way, can pass laws fixing this, but Congress has not done that. I think the Justice Department can tighten up some of its policies. We talked about some of the policies that favor uh, rich, wealthy, and powerful people. And I, I think we need a certain brand of prosecutor that I don't think, certainly Bill Barr was not that, but I also uh, don't think Mer- Merrick Garland is that person. <sighs>
1: Well, we, we have only been able to scratch the surface of what's just a fascinating book. And again, the book is Untouchable, How Powerful People Get Away With It. And we will have a link in the show notes. And so, uh, Ellie Honek, it's been great talking with you about the book today.
0: Michael, thank you so much for having me. My pleasure.
1: We hope you enjoyed this Politics Guys interview, and if you did, we'd really appreciate it if you could mention us on social media or however else you share things you like. It would also be great if you could rate and review us on your podcast app. If you've got a question, comment, correction, gripe, manifesto, whatever, you want to share it with us, you can reach us a bunch of ways. Mail at politicsguys.com, as well as there's our supporters exclusive Discord channel, and we're also on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to become a supporter of the show, you can find out more about that at patreon.com politicsguys or politicsguys.com support. And links to all that are always in our show notes. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, and Ryan Beasley. We'll be back with a new episode this coming weekend. We hope you'll join us.